Okay, so we're going to get started with the next panel. And our first speaker is going to be uh, Jeffrey Myron. Uh, Jeffrey is Director of Economic Studies at the Cato Institute and Director of Graduate and Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard University. From 1992 to 1998, he was Chairman of the Department of Economics at Boston University. He's author of Drug War Crimes, The Consequences of Prohibition and the economics of seasonal cycles, in addition to numerous op-eds and journal articles. Uh, Myron received a, P a BA magna cum laude from Swarthmore College in 1979 and a PhD in economics from MIT in 1984. And he's going to help us with an overview of the situation. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for the introduction. Um, I'm going to offer a perspective that might be slightly annoying or feel a little bit different than a lot of the tone. So I'm going to apologize in advance if it feels that way. It's not intended that way, and I will try really hard not to present it that way. But I'm going to pick a little bit at sort of some of the things that are involved in all the various topics today. So I want to talk about drug prohibition, especially and the relationship between drug prohibition and harm reduction. Okay. Um, and let's start by just asking, why do governments sort of outlaw drugs? Now, there are, of course, lots of possible reasons. Different people might emphasize that different things have been important historically. I absolutely share the perspective that Clark Neely hinted at in the previous converse, uh, session, where he discussed racism and other anti-immigrant feelings. If you go back to U.S. anti-alcohol laws, they started in the 1840s, directed at Irish immigrants. The anti-opium laws in the 1890s were directed against Chinese immigrants. Anti-marijuana laws in the 20s and 30s against Mexican immigrants, and on and on. So that's certainly one component of why we have uh, prohibition of drugs, alcohol, and occasionally other substances. Okay? At the same time, Okay. Lots of people, even though I disagree with their analysis, have very good intentions in wanting to outlaw drugs. They think that drugs are dangerous for people or bad for people, and they're trying to help other people okay, by advocating for uh, drug prohibition as a mechanism to try to reduce uh, the misuse, the negative effects that people might get with drugs. Okay? So I would say that the standard view, setting aside sort of some of the history and the racism aspects that clearly do, in my judgment, underlie why we actually have drug laws, um, people think that drugs are dangerous. Okay? That's why they think they should be outlawed. Okay? And that would be, I think that's an answer you would get from a very broad spectrum okay, of people you might ask about this issue. Now, of course, to an economist, and I hope to non-economist, that's a misguided perspective. Asking whether something is dangerous doesn't tell you anything about whether it should be legal or not. Why? Because at one level, almost everything is dangerous. And in particular, we can think of all sorts of goods and services which are sometimes dangerous to the user or the participant or to other people if they're used in the wrong circumstances, if they're used under the wrong conditions. Cars kill 30 to 40,000 people a year. Downhill skiing. Okay, causes lots of damage to people's knees and joints and occasionally even leads to deaths. Peanuts kill certain people who are allergic. Penicillin kills, kills people who are allergic, even though it also okay, is very valuable for people uh, who need it as medicine. Okay? So that perspective, some things are dangerous, therefore we should outlaw them, is just a non-starter, a nonsensical perspective. Okay? So what's a different way to think about why we outlaw drugs? A better question, 
okay, a more economically valid question is, does prohibition increase or decrease the risks associated with drugs? That, first of all, incorporates the economics emphasis on opportunity cost, on comparing feasible alternatives, rather than pretending that we can wave a magic wand by outlawing some substance and then get rid of it or get rid of its negative effects. That's blatantly false. We've seen it billions of times over centuries or, uh, and all through history. So if we ask whether prohibition increases or decreases the risks, that's a well-formulated question to which we could bring evidence and analysis and so on. Even better, okay, what economists would like people to do is to say, what are all the consequences okay, of prohibiting drugs? Okay, what are the benefits, if any? What are the costs of all their various forms? Trying to take account not just of direct monetary effects or the tangible, countable things, but okay, much more intangible or hard to measure things that are nevertheless important. I'll get to those in a few minutes. And we should be asking whether all of the possible benefits of a particular policy, such as prohibition, outweigh all the possible negatives okay, of prohibition. So I'm going to, sorry, uh, go through these, the following three points. I'm going to review the overall case for legalization, talk about all the negatives of prohibition relative to legalization, then apply that specifically to the opioid crisis and explain that the opioid crisis is absolutely a textbook example of what standard analysis predicts prohibition will do okay, to various aspects of society. And then, with that lens, talk about the pros, possible cons, and interrelationships between prohibition and harm reduction policies. So the first thing to note is that prohibition doesn't eliminate drugs. It didn't eliminate alcohol in the 1920s and early 30s. It didn't eliminate it in other countries that tried alcohol prohibition. Okay. When the former Soviet Union tried to outlaw blue jeans, it didn't outlaw blue jeans. What did it do? It created an underground market. Okay. That underground market may have been a little bit smaller than it would, that market would have been otherwise, but to a first order, the main effect of prohibition is simply to drive things underground. People want to buy something, they're going to try to find someone willing to sell it, and at some level markets work, someone will step up and supply anything that's in significant demand. That's what happens when you uh, outlaw any particular commodity or service. Okay. In addition, of course, prohibition has a bunch of very obvious consistently documented, okay, widely observed negatives. One would be violence and corruption. Okay, because the participants in an underground market can't resolve their disputes over contracts, over debts, over quality, et cetera, using courts and lawyers and standard nonviolent mechanisms, okay, they resort to violence instead. Because they can't easily influence policy or judges or things using standard above board legal mechanisms, nonviolent mechanisms. They bribe jurors or judges or prison guards and police and so on. So prohibition breeds corruption. Okay? As Clark hinted at, and I mentioned briefly, prohibition is terrible for civil rights because the drug trade involves, quote unquote, victimless crimes. Okay? The two parties to a transaction okay, don't want to go to the police and say, you should arrest that person down the street because he just sold me drugs. Obviously, you would be implicating yourself okay, if you did that. Okay, in contrast to standard real crimes like murder and theft and so on, where there are natural complainants who go to the police and want to provide witness and so on. So to enforce drug prohibition, okay, the police have to use much more invasive tactics like knockdown uh, searches, no-knock warrants, and, and so on. Okay? And so that's terrible, uh, sets terrible precedents for civil rights. Similarly, 
Okay, for a victimless crime, it's much easier for any racist tendencies that might exist in some police okay, to be exercised because it's very easy to say, I think that people who look like that, often meaning people of particular color, are more likely to be drug users and therefore I'm gonna stop and frisk them or harass them or whatever. Okay, that's harder to do, although of course not impossible, when you have real crimes that have witnesses and, and, and so on and so forth. Okay, going further, prohibition spawns limits on the medical use of all sorts of medications okay, because the prohibitionists are afraid that the more something is used medicinally, the more accessible it might be, the more people will realize it's actually not so bad for you. It has beneficial effects. And so historically, we've had all these restrictions on the medicinal use of marijuana, of opioids, of LSD, and other psychedelics that appear, based on the evidence we have, to have the potential for very effective medical uses. Okay? Of course, prohibition involves the direct enforcement costs. I have some estimates of that for the U.S. of roughly $50 billion a year okay, in combining state and federal governments. Prohibition means we're not collecting revenue in the standard way on the sales of legalized uh, drugs. That also turns out to be about uh, $50 billion per year. Okay, and of course, okay, you could sort of sum all of that up or state it very differently, okay, especially since we're at the Cato Institute, by saying prohibition restricts people's individual freedom. And there ought to be an incredibly high bar for any government policy that restricts freedom, okay, okay, unless there's really compelling evidence that there's a valid reason to do so. So if someone seems to have committed a murder, okay, that's a pretty good reason maybe to restrict that person's freedom. The fact that someone is smoking dope or using uh, heroin or fentanyl, that, at least to libertarians, is not at all a valid reason to restrict their freedom. Now there's one more major negative of prohibitions that's especially relevant to today. And that is that prohibition increases the risks of consuming almost any substance. Okay? Why? Three basic reasons. First, black markets reduce the information about quality and potency. When you go to buy Advil, when you go to buy Johnny Walker Black, when you go to buy any substance at a legal store, you can be fairly confident, not 100%. There are examples where legal things get tainted by some deranged person or something like that. But to a first approximation, you know that when you buy alcohol at the store and it says it's 80% proof, it's 80% proof, okay? It hasn't been adulterated, it hasn't had methanol added to it in addition to the ethanol, and so on and so forth, okay? And you buy Advil, your confidence Advil. That's not very easy in an underground market. You might be buying from different supplier all the time, those suppliers are turning over all the time, you don't have the ability to sue that supplier if the supplier gives you adulterated drugs and so on and so forth. So the information about the potency and the quality of the drugs you buy or any product is going to be substantially reduced in underground markets. Okay? Prohibition also incentivizes the traffickers to want to use the most potent versions of the substances because that means they're transporting, hiding smaller amounts, more compact amounts, spirits as opposed to beer and wine, as one example, or fentanyl as opposed to heroin, okay, as another example, because then they can more easily okay, avoid detection uh, and, and jail time and so on. Okay? So tr that reinforces the fact that you don't have good information, you're also more likely to be pushed to buy a relatively potent version okay, of the substances. And prohibition incentivizes riskier methods of, injection, uh, of ingestion, mainly injection, Okay, even though the vast majority of drugs could be uh, administered in all sorts of ways, smoking, sw swallowing a pill, et cetera, et cetera, okay, which wouldn't have, say, the risk of sharing dirty needles that occurs 
in the case of uh, the HIV epidemic and the injection, uh, IV drug users. Okay? And so uh, the high prices, the limits on drug paraphernalia and so on, okay, are pushing people into okay, these riskier ingestion methods, okay, and that's also going to increase the risk of drugs in a black market. Okay? So drugs become more dangerous. We're all familiar with some of the standard examples of that. During alcohol prohibition, okay, many traffickers okay, substituted industrial alcohol, methanol, okay, and sold it as consumable alcohol, ethanol, and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people were poisoned and died. Okay? That wouldn't have happened in a legal market. It never happened before or since in the legal alcohol market. In the 1970s, okay, federal government, in conjunction with the Mexican government, sprayed marijuana fields okay, in Mexico with Paraquat, okay, a, a pesticide that was supposed to kill off the marijuana fields so that stuff couldn't be sold back in the US. But of course, a lot of it survived. It was sold by traffickers, and many people were sickened because they were consuming Paraquat, not just okay, marijuana. And then we talked about the HIV epidemic and how much of that was due to okay, people sharing dirty needles. Okay, so heroin also, because it was underground, was much more dangerous and what would have been true in a legal market. Okay? Now, let's relate that to the current opioid crisis. Okay? The current opioid crisis fits this prediction about the effects of prohibition perfectly. Prohibition, by which I don't just mean making heroin fully illegal, but also the fact that if you want access to any of the prescription opioids, you can't get it except via a prescription except by a doctor. So a tightly, tightly regulated slash outlawed set of commodities. Prohibition generates all the restrictions on prescription access because opioid users face those restrictions okay, and can't get access to prescription opioids when they might want to. They shift their demand to the black market and then they accidentally, in many instances, overdose on heroin or heroin laced with fentanyl even more. More recently, cocaine laced with fentanyl and so on and so forth. Okay? And so that is now, I think, quite widely documented. Lots of people have accepted that this is, in fact, what is going on in generating large fractions of the opioid deaths. So here's a chart which illustrates that. The top line is the total deaths over 99 to 2015. Okay? The other line, this gray line, okay, are those due to heroin and synthetics. Synthetics is mainly fentanyl. Okay? And those are the ones that have skyrocketed since about 2010, okay, which is when various things led to much greater restrictions okay, on legal access to prescription opioids. Okay. The prescription deaths, the non-heroin or synthetic, okay, is ma was mainly the prescription drugs. Those, you can see, actually flattened off in 2010. Now, it's interesting to look at this in just a little more detail. This is the same graph, except it adds one more line, this color, whatever that is, grayish blue, okay, is legal opioid consumption, meaning the amount consumed via prescription. Okay? So that, in fact, leveled off around 2010, 2011, okay, consistent with the fact that the federal government and state governments were trying very hard to restrict prescription access in a whole set of ways. So at one level, they were successful. Okay? They indeed caused prescription prescribing, caused prescribing to flatten. Okay? Consistent with that, Deaths, the yellow line, due to prescription opioids also flattened, but we saw exactly what the theory of prohibition suggests, people substituting toward 
other, subs, other opioids in the black market, and the total number of deaths, in fact, growing, if anything, faster okay, after the federal and state governments started tr- cracking down uh, on prescribing. Okay? So what's the right response to, to that perspective? Okay? This is my response. Just legalize it. All opioids, everything you can possibly think of from okay, morphine or opium all the way to carfentanil or sufentanil or whatever it is, just legalize. Okay? Now, given that perspective, okay, why are we discussing harm reduction? HR is just for harm reduction, just to make the slides cleaner. I think people give three basic answers to why we want to focus on harm reduction or maybe why we should prefer harm reduction okay, instead of legalization. Okay? Three answers would be we need harm reduction even under legalization. Okay? So legalization won't actually solve all of the problems okay, that uh, currently exist related to drug use. Second would be that harm reduction is in fact different than legalization okay, for various reasons I'll try to discuss in a moment. And I think most importantly, people argue that harm reduction is politically just easier. Lots of people of you might agree with me. Ideally, we would just legalize, but you despair that we will ever be able to actually legalize, and so you emphasize harm reduction instead. So I just want to talk about each of those three points a little bit. So would we need harm reduction policies if opioids were truly legal? My position is mainly not. I'm not saying entirely not, but mainly not. Why? Because under a truly legal regime, anybody who wants opioids goes to the store and buys them. The same way people who are addicted to caffeine go to Starbucks, the people who want to consume alcohol go to their local liquor store or their grocery store or whatever. Okay? And so there would be much, much less of people sharing dirty needles, of people consuming opioids from illicit sources. So a lot of the negatives that currently occur would simply go away because people could maintain themselves. One form of harm reduction is narcotic maintenance, okay, trivially okay, in a fully legal market. Okay? Now, of course, some drug users have serious issues in addition to their drug use or whether or not it's legal, just as some people have issues with alcohol use, even though it's legal. So this is not a statement that there should be no policies that help such people. It's that a huge fraction of the people who are currently experiencing problems would have their problems diminished or eliminated if the opioids were legal, okay, and that the remaining people are a separate issue okay, from legalization or harm reduction. Okay. A second argument some people might make is that harm reduction uh, is, not, is, is different. And I think they would tend to argue that it's different because they think that there will be lots of people involved in supervising the drug use, such as in a safe injection facility, They might think it's different because they believe that if you're getting methadone, that that's fundamentally different than consuming morphine that you bought from the local drugstore or consuming heroin that you bought from the local Starbucks or whatever. I would describe it very differently. I would say that harm reduction is partial legalization. It's allowing far more people to get access to a legal supply where they know what that supply is, and therefore they will very rarely Okay, accidentally consume something that happens to be laced with fentanyl without their knowledge, that happens to be much more potent okay, than they were expecting, and so on. Okay? Harm reduction is also partial legalization because it will shrink the black market. So the negatives of the black market from violence to corruption and so on will go down okay, the more harm reduction takes place and the more people can access those mechanisms rather than the black market. And that's especially true for harm reduction policies that I would describe as less government 
looser rules on how much and how people can uh, access opioids. As another example, far fewer restrictions that in place on opening a methadone clinic or, or providing narcotic maintenance if you're a PCP and things like that. Okay? All of those things will simply mean hey, there will be much more legal access. Last question, okay, is harm reduction just more politically viable okay, than legalization? So, of course, I'll stipulate that legalization of all opioids would be a challenging thing politically. It's not obvious it's going to happen okay, anytime soon. But I think that harm reduction also has some bad optics. Okay? It's inaccurate in many ways, but it's not totally wrong, and it certainly is the common perception that a lot of harm reduction policies involve taxpayers' money being used to give drugs to addicts. A lot of people don't like that idea. It feels really bad to them. And some people say, gee, if it were just letting people consume to choose on their own, but I'm not paying for it, their distaste would be less. And maybe that means legalization is sort of slightly easy, you know, ha has a role. So harm reduction is politically challenging as well. Plus, there have been successes for legalization movements. Okay? Marijuana is the most obvious example. Alcohol prohibition is a dramatic example. Uh, if we look across other countries, like Canada, in particular for marijuana, uh, it de facto in Portugal and other parts of Europe, we see that legalization is making progress. So that suggests we shouldn't despair okay, from a political perspective of focusing on legalization in addition to focusing on harm reduction. So my messages are, Prohibition is a terrible policy. Okay? Harm reduction absolutely helps. I'm all in favor of harm reduction, all the various kinds of harm reduction, specifically because they are partial legalization, because they're moving us to a less prohibitionist policy stance. And politically, harm reduction might be the best option, although I don't think that's clear. Okay? But I want to emphasize that legalization is the ultimate goal, is the ultimate solution. We shouldn't lose sight of that fact as we discuss harm reduction. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. Now our next speaker is going to be Maya Salovitz. Maya Salovitz is the author of the, of the New York Times bestseller, Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction, which is widely recognized as an important advance in thinking about the nature of addiction and how to cope with it personally and politically. She's written for numerous publications from High Times to the New York Times, including Time, Washington Post, Guardian, Vice, Scientific American, and The Atlantic, and she's the author or co-author of five other books. She has won awards from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the Drug Policy Alliance, the American Psychological Association, the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology, that's a tongue twister, for her 30 years of groundbreaking uh, writing on addiction, drug policy, and neuroscience. Uh, she attended Columbia University and graduated cum laude from my alma mater, Brooklyn College. So, Ms. Solomons. Thanks so much for having me. Um, hopefully, um, I can be audible and visible and also figure this thing out. Um, can people hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Um, so I'm just going to talk a bit about what harm reduction is and where it came from. Um, so the fundamental idea of harm reduction is that what we care about is not how many people take drugs, not how many people get unearned euphoria, but how many people get harmed. 
if every single one of you were wasted off your head on um, some psychedelic or whatever other form of drug, and you were not harming yourself or others, harm reduction wouldn't care. So the idea is that the main goal of policy, drug policy, is minimizing harm associated with drug use and not having this insane idea that we could have or even want a drug-free world. Um, so the second thing is that harm reduction is based on evidence. If a practice does not actually reduce harm, it cannot be considered harm reduction. Um, and so obviously, while there will be things that will be not yet proven, um, something that has been proven to be harmful will be eliminated from harm reduction for obvious reasons. Uh, third thing is, and, and we heard a bit about this earlier, harm reduction meets people where they are. And it's essential to do this because if you're trying to change someone's behavior and they're running away from you, it's not going to work very well. You need to be connected to that community and involved in that community and in dialogue with that community if you are going to be able to make harm reduction work. Um, finally, it needs to be... Oh, I missed my point, which I was going to say. So the... Um, one of the essential insights of harm reduction is that our drug laws are not based on science. And that basically you could not come up with a scientific or risk-based rationale for having illegal marijuana and legal tobacco and cigarettes uh, and alcohol. It just, there's no way to like sit down and have some government committee make that decision based on anything rational. Um, and so when... Um, Yeah, I'm looking at, oh, there we go, right, okay. <laughs> Excuse me, I didn't, unfamiliar with this equipment. Um, uh, so basically, this means that all human beings have the right to life, and we shouldn't say alcohol and tobacco users get the benefit of a regulated market, um, whereas everybody else gets sentenced to death, potentially. Um, so that's a fundamental recognition among people who practice harm reduction. And finally, in order to meet people where they're at and in order to work, harm reduction must be compassionate and non-judgmental. Otherwise, again, you're not going to engage with the community that you need to engage with. Um, so you will see a headline with a big typo. Um, and this is about, this is the first article um, that described harm reduction in drug policy. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, can I get some more? Sorry. <laughs> that will help. Um, this is the first article that described uh, harm reduction as drug policy. It was written by psychologist Russell Newton um, in 1987. Um, Newton was part of a group of people in Liverpool who are basically the founders of harm reduction. Now, this is, of course, not to say that there was never the idea, first do no harm, before 1987 in Liverpool. Um, we have had many harm reduction interventions like seat belts and designated drivers, but putting it together under the rubric of harm reduction and conceptualizing it as drug policy, this starts in Liverpool in the 80s. And so how does this happen? It starts um, with the threat of AIDS being recognized in the UK. And there were two kind of big wigs in their National Health Service, um, John Ashton and, and Howard Seymour. 
And they discovered um, that Liverpool was having a huge heroin epidemic. There was lots of injecting going on. And they recognized that this will really put um, this community at risk for having an HIV epidemic. And soon, <laughs> in Scotland, there was indeed an HIV outbreak. And this outbreak was caused by a pharmacy or police cracking down and not letting people get clean needles. And almost immediately, you had half of the injectors um, infected. Um, and so a committee set up to look at this. Um, and they make this statement, which is, even now seems rather radical. Prevention of the spread of HIV must take priority over any perceived risk of increasing drug misuse. Um, so back in Liverpool, um, Ashton and Seymour uh, met a guy named Glenn Margo, who was the director of health promotion for the city of San Francisco. Um, he was an HIV-positive gay man also, and they were like, please tell us what to do. How do we prevent this from happening here? Um, and he emphasized two things. The first was, you can't do this without engaging the community, having dialogue with the community, and putting the community front and center. Um, and the second thing is, you can't do this without providing clean needles. Now, the... Uh, Origination of needle exchange itself starts in uh, Amsterdam in 19, or Holland. Um, it might have been Rotterdam. Anyway, it is in the Netherlands um, in 1984. And what happened there was, again, it was either the police or a pharmacist stopped letting people who were using drugs have access to needles. And there was a big outbreak of hepatitis B. And there was a user organization there called the Junkie Bund, or Junkie Union. And they decided, hey, we're not going to stand for this. Um, we need to have access to clean needles. And thus, Needle Exchange was born. Um, so in the UK, Ashton and Seymour decided, we're going to set up one of these. Um, and to run and found it, they hired a former IV drug user named um, Alan Parry. Um, so this, we get to 1988 now. This is the very famous statement by the UK's Advisory Committee on the Misuse of Drugs. This committee advised Margaret Thatcher. And what it came down to is, again, the spread of HIV, far more dangerous than drug use. And this means that we have to take action to prioritize fighting HIV. And we need to work with people who are still actively using drugs rather than expelling them from our healthcare organizations. Um, and so we had Reagan, they had Thatcher. How does this happen that Thatcher goes for this? So this is where it's a really good idea to know, have friends in high places, basically. Seymour and Ashton were really good friends with a guy who was like really good friends with Thatcher. And he, he was a knight. He, um, you know, sort of whispered in her ear that this is really the only way to manage this. Um, there were two other knights um, that were also uh, in the bureaucracy there that were highly supportive. So these gave Liverpool cover to do this when that kind of thing was just not happening, certainly not on a federal level um, in the United States. Okay. 
So um, this is the first model of harm reduction that exists. And as we've noted before, it, you got to involve the people at risk, compassionate, non-judgmental. You need to make maintenance treatments easy to get and easy to continue. You can't be having people have to show up every day and have people watch them urinate um, and expect them to find this a lovely practice and to continue with it for long term. But we know that maintenance medications are the only thing that cuts the death rate by 50% or more, but you have to stay on it. Um, it also dramatically reduces um, HIV infection and other bloodborne diseases. The other key thing that the Mersey model included was prescribing injectables to people who um, were not doing well on methadone or wouldn't accept it or had failed many, many treatments. And so they would prescribe heroin, they would prescribe cocaine, they prescribe injectable methadone. Um, and so that was, um, that is the core of the Mersey model. And so these are some of the key people. Um, this is the first time that the New York Times mentions the term harm reduction. Um, and this is Alan Parry, the guy who headed the Liverpool Needle Exchange. And that is Peter McDermott, who um, was basically kind of the architect of the ideas of harm reduction. He was one of the early editors of the International Journal on Drug Policy. Before that, it had been called the Mersey Drugs Journal. A couple of other important names there are um, Pat O'Hare and Lynn and Alan Matthews. Um, so how do you end up with prescribing in Liverpool? Um, the rest of the country, by this point, had completely abandoned um, prescribing heroin and cocaine and, and other substances that users wanted to them. But way back in the 1920s, again, the UK took a different direction than the United States did. And they decided that it is perfectly legitimate medicine to continue somebody who has become dependent on opioids on them, regardless of if they still have a medical need for it. Um, the US, unfortunately, the Supreme Court decided that that does not count as a legitimate medical practice. And so we had to wait until the 70s before we could get methadone. And slowly, we're beginning to understand the idea of maintenance again. But in the UK, the British system um, persisted all the way up through the 60s. And they had very little problem with it. They just, somebody was like conning doctors to get drugs. Um, McDermott actually told me a story once where um, he was trying to get this drug called Dicanol, um, which is a very much prized opioid in the UK. Um, and uh, you know he was conning this doctor. And the doctor was just like, look, stop this. You're faking. Here's a drug. Let's get on with it. And <laughs> that is the British system. Um, and it worked quite well into the 60s when it got just overwhelmed by all the stuff of the 60s, basically. Um, so um, then the UK said, yeah, let's do what the United States does. It's working really well. So they decided to um, limit methadone, have very short-term scripts, um, blah, blah, blah. But Liverpool kept the old British system. And there are people who've been on heroin maintenance since forever. Um, and there's still people today on heroin maintenance and injectable methadone maintenance. And uh, I think the cocaine people are mostly gone. But um, the, you know, because they had this tradition, because it was there, when they needed to revive it in the time of AIDS, it was available to be expanded. 
So let's go to the United States. Um, so harm reduction starts. There's a lot of um, interaction between the Liverpool group and the people in the US who are um, working here to try to get this happening. Um, John Parker um, founded what is probably the first needle exchange in the United States. Um, and he is a former IV drug user. Um, he was a public health student at Yale at the time. And he went up and down the East Coast. The New York Times called him the Johnny Appleseed of needles. Um, and he would go and you know hand out clean needles and, and, and spread the word. Um, on the West Coast, the pioneer was Dave Purchase. He first starts an undergrad needle exchange, and then the local government hires him to do it officially. Now, one of the things John Parker was really good at was like getting himself arrested on purpose. And the big state, the state where everything was happening, was New York, because we had 50% of our IV drug users were HIV positive, and we had at least 200,000 IV drug users. We were the epicenter. And so they're like, we got to do something about New York. And so ACT UP and John Parker went down to the Lower East Side, set up a thing on the uh, corner of Essex and Delancey, and uh, called all the media and the police, got themselves arrested. And this is actually relevant to the um, debate over safe injection facilities now, because they got themselves arrested in order to say that what they were doing was medically necessary. It was necessary for public health. And New York, at least, has a law that says that like, if a criminal law is like harmful to public health, you can override that in an emergency. And so they were like, we did this because it is necessary. And they brought all the experts in the world to testify and say, yes, this works. Yes, it should be done, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they won. Um, the judge accepted the necessity defense. Um, and I don't know if this will work in Philadelphia, but it certainly needs to be continued, <laughs> considered rather. Um, but the, um, you know, and the judge, it was interesting because she was like, oh, this is not a precedent. But it did immediately become a precedent. And um, New York State um, stopped criminalizing syringe possession and legalized needle exchange. And now in the United States, we have over 300 um, needle exchange programs. And this is just a shot of John Parker in the early days out there on the street doing his thing. So another key element of harm reduction is naloxone. Um, this is the antidote to opioid overdose. It was invented in 1961 by Jack Fishman. It is a very innocuous drug. If you use it by mistake, it will pretty much usually do nothing whatsoever. Um, it, the only real common side effect um, is if you are physically dependent on an opioid, it will put you into withdrawal, and that will not be fun. Um, but, you know, for years and years and years, this drug was sitting on shelves and in hospitals, only used in medical settings when people were dying on the street of overdose, and if they had this, they could have saved somebody's life. Um, so... In 1996, Dan Big, um, also a former drug user, um, he was the co-founder of the Chicago Recovery Alliance. He's just like, he lost a friend to overdose. He's like, the heck with this. I'm going to start handing this out. Why isn't this stuff over the counter? We got to just get it out there. Um, and he just went and did it. 
And as of 2014, there are over 600 sites in 30 states, and there are hundreds more being added all the time. If you have a Google alert for um, naloxone, it will be every day many, many, many things, which is really good. And this is Dan, who we unfortunately lost this year, um, and the dog that he loved very much. Okay. Um, so I now want to talk about the um, evidence in favor of all these um, harm reduction tactics that I have just described. Um, needle exchange um, is the single most studied and proven um, intervention in um, public health, um, or at least uh, close to it, if not the. Um, there have been reviews by the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, NIH, um, and they all show that it cuts um, HIV spread without increasing drug use. Um, in 2014, New York State did a review of the literature, and it called needle exchange the gold standard of HIV prevention. Um, and that means that it's better than condoms. Um, <laughs> In New York State, we had prevalence of HIV in the 1990s of 50% or more among IV drug users. It is now less than 3%. Um, in New York, we had a horrible um, heterosexual and pediatric um, epidemic. I'm sure you remember all the AIDS babies stories. Um, the UK never had that. They didn't have a heterosexual epidemic. They didn't have a pediatric epidemic. Um, in IV drug users, the the rate of infection with HIV was 1% in the, in the whole country. In the whole country, in the US, in the general population, our rate was 1%. So this is an enormous public health success, and it requires both methadone or other maintenance drugs and needle exchange in order to be effective. And needle exchange, the data shows clearly, um, reduced HIV, reduced hepatitis C, reduced needle litter, um, and increased treatment admissions. And I want to just stick on that for a second because um, a lot of people think, well, you're giving people needles, you're giving them heroin, or you know, you're like doing stuff that's enabling them. Um, why would they stop? And the reality is that one of the secrets of harm reduction is that people who are using drugs are usually so stigmatized and so full of self-hatred and shame that they really, you know, don't care about themselves very much at that point. And so when somebody gives them a clean needle or, you know, free drugs, um, they are awakened and just they're like kind of wondering why anybody would actually care about me. And so when somebody says to you, I care about you, not because I'm trying to make you do something, not because I need you to stop drugs instantly, otherwise you're worthless. Um, you're a human being. You deserve to live. And that's really powerful. When you experience having been like just like people, you know, crossing the street to avoid you, um, which I have experienced when I was an active drug user, um, and you go to a place where people are like, you, this place is for you, we want you, we accept you, um, that sort of starts making you think, well, maybe I should, maybe I am worth something, maybe I can do something, you know? And that opens the door to all kinds of improvement in health, including uh, recovery. So we have the evidence base for medications here. 
Um, so this is, again, enormous, huge, massive evidence in favor of this. Um, in fact, so much so that the World Health Organization lists buprenorphine and methadone as essential medications for addiction, which means that all countries should use them and use them long term in order to treat opioid addiction. Now, this is one of my favorite studies here. The entire population of treatment in treatment for opioid addiction in the United Kingdom between 2005 and 2009, this is 150,000 people. Um, this study looked at abstinence, all different kinds of abstinence, rehab, outpatient, whatever, versus medication treatment. 50% reduction in mortality in the um, maintenance folks. Um, so if anybody tries to tell you that, you know, medication isn't really recovery or, you know, abstinence is the only way, um, you should say, okay, but you can't recover if you're dead. Um, and the, um, you know, the, the data here is just huge. There's the systematic review that I mentioned here, and there are handouts somewhere that um, have the actual citations on this. Um, but that found like a two-thirds reduction in mortality. There have been studies that have been done post-fentanyl where, you know, people were worried, oh, no, this won't work for fentanyl. It does. So you still see the 50% reduction in mortality. Um, there's also... In terms of heroin, everybody thinks, oh, that's kind of far out and weird. Well, there's enough data on heroin prescribing now that there's a Cochrane review. And a Cochrane review is like the gold standard of uh, medical evidence. Um, and so they had enough studies, enough rigorous studies to review to look at whether heroin was a good treatment. And they say, yes, the data supports this. Um, and um, it should be primarily used when methadone and buprenorphine have failed because um, it's more expensive and it's harder, there's more risks to it. So it should be to the high-risk population, but for that population, it does a lot of good things. And that includes reductions in drug use, crime, HIV, hepatitis, um, homelessness. Um, you know, all of these things um, really um, help people get their lives back. Let's just look at the evidence base for naloxone. Um, here, um, my favorite study on this one, there was a study in Massachusetts where they compared um, uh, areas of the state where people had been really diligent and got the naloxone out there and had lots of trainings and had lots of access to areas of the state where eh, there was a little bit. 50% reduction in overdose deaths in the areas with the high penetration of naloxone. There's a systematic review. Um, there is not as much data on naloxone as there is on all of this other stuff. And I would argue that partially that's because common sense tells you that if you have the antidote, you are less likely to die than if you don't have the antidote. And I know that there have been some people who have made some arguments that like, oh, naloxone is a moral hazard and um, it means that people are going to um, uh, you know, use more drugs if you give it to them or have naloxone parties or whatever. And the absurd part of this is two things. One is people who are addicted to injection drugs generally try to use as much drugs as they can possibly afford for that day. If you don't give them more money, you're not going to be able to get them to use more drugs. Um, so that's a silly thing. But what's even more important is Imagine if you are on the brink of the most amazing euphoria ever, and then suddenly you're puking and shaking and in the worst anxiety of your life. 
That's what it feels like to get naloxoned. Nobody's going to deliberately seek that experience. And so the idea of it as a moral hazard just comes from people who probably never met somebody who uses drugs. Um, and uh, okay, safe injection facilities. Um, I think because we're hearing more, we heard more earlier about this, I'm going to skip this, but they work. Um, my final points here <laughs> are that um, harm reduction is a huge challenge to drug prohibition because once the goal of policy is to reduce harm rather than to stop highs, there's no way to justify our current policy. Um, harm reduction also provides a way to put the focus on health and justice, not this abstract, let's get the number of people using drugs down because drugs are bad. Um, finally, um, harm reduction is rational and is evidence-based, so it's kind of hard to argue against it. Um, lots of people make the argument that it sends the wrong message, but if the data shows that it's actually not increasing drug use, that really is not a useful case. Um, so the arguments against harm reduction really tend to be based on um, moral ideas about the badness of drugs um, rather than on um, the actual data. And so I think um, I'm currently working on a book on the history of harm reduction. Um, and one of the reasons I embarked on doing this is that harm reduction went from an idea held by like three people in Liverpool to like an international movement. And as soon as it started getting even a little bit of traction, the authorities were not happy. Um, you, had, you had representatives from the United States going to UN meetings and telling them to take the words harm reduction out of their drug policies because it was so radical. And I believe they recognize that threat because you cannot justify prohibition if it doesn't reduce harm. And we know that it does reduce harm. So harm it does, it does increase harm. <laughs> so harm reduction needs to be our policy regardless of the specifics um, of our laws. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have time for a couple of questions, and then we'll have a break. So again, I, I ask uh, that you wait to be called on and um, you state your uh, name and affiliation. Uh, questions, uh, gentleman right here in the front. Good morning, my name is Devin Reeves. I'm from the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition and while we're talking about all this exciting stuff, supervised injection, prescription heroin, you know, I live in a state where syringe service programs are still illegal. Um, you know, how do, <laughs> I know, it's really embarrassing. Um, you know, um, how do, you know, academics, journalists, and just people that are here, how do they become activated to advocate for harm reduction in their local community? Hi. I, hi. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a hard, really hard question. Um, but I think really um, what Governor Rendell said earlier about, you know, it was when he knew someone um, I hope that isn't what it's going to always take, but I do think that one of the things that has really moved harm reduction forward is that in the past, parents of people with addiction have been very much just say no, tough love, throw them in jail, that's the best thing. 
And now they're like, wait a minute, that didn't help my kid. In fact, that probably killed my kid. And they're like, wait a minute, there's this stuff, naloxone, that can reduce an overdose, reverse an overdose, and you didn't tell me about it? And I could have saved my kid's life? So I think parents are an essential group to activate. Um, and I think that if you speak kind of plain language and from the heart and have a lot of people who are um, involved, um, just keep at it. I mean, the, the only thing I can say looking back 30 years over this is it eventually happens. It takes way too long, but you just got to keep fighting. Uh, way in the back. Uh, just wait for the mic to come to you, please. Hi, my name is Veronica, and I founded an organization called the National Coalition for Drug Legalization. And um, I believe in legalization of all drugs, all drugs, all Schedule One drugs specifically. And what I want to do is I want to do research on the industrial uses of drugs, it's, it's more specifically heroin and cocaine. Like, what else can you do with these drugs other than use it for recreation? And so I guess my question is more directed towards Dr. Miron. Would you or anyone else that you know of, would, would you be interested in doing that kind of research? Do you know people who might be interested in doing that kind of research? I certainly would be interested in if I knew more about what the potential industrial uses are. I frankly am not aware of that, except uh, I guess for hemp uh, related to marijuana production. So. Maybe we should chat afterwards, and you can give me some information. Uh, and I'd certainly be happy to think about it or point you toward other people who could think about it. And I mean, if you are talking about health, um, the UK um, routinely prescribes um, heroin for um, end-of-life care, and it, it works quite well. Um, uh, cocaine is also routinely used in eye surgery, even in the United States. Um, but beyond those two things, um, I am not aware of. Were you thinking of industrial uses or commercial uses other than as a medicine or such as, what's an example? How about one, one more? Um, uh, up there on the, on the, with the tie and the beard. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I'm still Charles Lehman from the Free Beacon. Um, so, so this is a question that I think both of you can sort of respond to differently. Uh, one of the most important trends in the last 15 years in the bigger drug ecosystem is the introduction of sort of the broad class of new psychoactive substances, especially mass-produced synthetics. How should harm reductionists respond to those in particular? And separately, how, if at all, do those bear on uh, the value add or subtraction of prohibition? I mean, I, th I think that harm reductionists obviously need to be involved with understanding them um, and that you know, I mean, I, I wrote an article about um, people trying to dilute fentanyl 
um, so that like instead of getting one massive overdose, you'd be able to get high for a week, um, which would also have interesting economic um, implications. Um, so there are people who are attempting to work on this. Obviously, this is not going to be something that's going to be able to be done by like a homeless person. Um, <laughs> maybe it could be done at a safe injection facility. Um, but, um, you know, there... I heard from somebody who talked to this guy who uses carfentanil that way. Um, and he orders it online and he titrates it. And so far as we know, he's still alive. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there are, there do seem to be ways to reduce harm associated with this. But I also think that it is the single biggest argument for legalization. Like New Zealand had a, um, brief period where they were going to have sort of like an FDA for these new psychoactive substances and they were going to approve them. Um, you didn't have to prove them effective at getting you high. You just had to prove them like um, not likely to kill you. Um, and they developed this whole process and, and they were going to have them sold in head shops and the head shops were already open and then political reversal happened and it went away. Um, but that that's what we need to get to eventually. If we are really going to Unless we're going to say that for the rest of all human history, the only drugs we are allowed are those that were preferred by 19th century white colonial men, um, uh, we are going to have to reckon with a way to legalize the safest um, recreational drugs. And when you do that, um, when you make available the stuff that people want, not just based on, well, we personally think this particular thing is bad because it's associated with those bad people, um, when you do that and you kind of have the consent of, of the people for your regulations, um, you can create a lot better um, situation of access to safe stuff. Um, <clears throat> because I think, you know, you're always going to need some form of oversight like the FDA to, like, give, um, to make sure you're not getting poison. Um, and we need that for the other substances. And since you can't get them through a medical approval system if they're just for euphoria, um, there needs to be um, another pathway. But I do think that the presence of these things shows that prohibition is untenable. And we'll just, one more question. There was a, oh, wait, somebody you wanted to say something, though. That was a great answer. So oh. Let's give somebody oh, else a chance. There was somebody in the... In the I was, okay, yeah. yeah. And then we, we definitely finished. <laughs> Hi, I'm Haley Dunn. I'm from the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Um, I have a question. So it seems apparent that there's been more of um, a mainstream look at legalizing marijuana, um, but we don't see the same kind of thing for opioids, even though a lot of people are recognizing it's a public health crisis and politicians are coming out that it's personally affected people they know. Why do you think there's a difference in the uh, political, excuse me, feasibility um, between legalizing marijuana and legalizing heroin? I would offer at least two possibilities. One is a lot of people think that opioids are legal and they're sort of right. They're the prescription ones are available through legal channels. So they're not quite doing the math that although it's illegal up to a point, zillions of people get cut off from their legal supply, so then that drives them to the black market. So for practical purposes, they are prohibited, even though technically they can be legally manufactured, distributed, prescribed, possessed, et cetera. Um, second, at least until relatively recently, okay, a lot more people consume marijuana than consumed 
opioids. And so the political support was more likely to express itself. I mean, certainly by the time we got to 1990, a very large fraction of people had consumed marijuana at least a few times in high school or college, or whatever. So there were lots of people who could say, oh, okay, this is not that big a deal. Whereas opioids were gradually getting to as the prescription use expands, and some people draw the reasonable inference from that, like, this helped me and nothing terrible happened, so maybe it should be available you know, more broadly. I guess I'd focus on those two things. I mean, I also think that um, you know, one of these things you can overdose on, the other thing, the other thing you can't. Um, and that's a pretty uh, strong point there. Um, I think also that the rapid rise of opioid overdose in the context of supposedly legal use made a lot of people think like, oh, no, we can't legalize, look what happens. Because what really was happening with the opioid overdose crisis was not that you got a bunch of pain patients who got addicted and then like, um, you know, started overdosing. What you got was 80% of the people who misuse prescription opioids got them from a family member, from a friend, from someone's medical cabinet. This was never medical use. Um, and it was in the context of alcohol use and benzodiazepine use and cocaine use and all other sorts of polydrug use. So, but people got the idea that, look, Purdue promoted all these drugs and therefore we have this mess. So why would you dare think legal opioids would be better? And so my feeling is that, first of all, we have been killing pain patients at the moment by like first giving them access and now we're just cutting them off. And if you're a person with addiction, at least you could go get buprenorphine or methadone. If you're a person in pain, you're just getting thrown on the street. Um, and that is outrageous and needs to change. Um, so, but I think in order to get to the case for legalization of drugs beyond um, marijuana, you have to get into the issue of commercialization. And I don't really think Philip Morris fentanyl is a good idea. Um, I. You know, I may disagree with a lot of people in this audience, but the, um, <laughs> I, I am not a fan of that sort of marketing for that. Like, I'm perfectly happy with Philip Morris weed because it's a relatively harmless drug. It's not completely harmless, but it is much less harmful than the competition. And so you want it to have the advantage that the competition does, right? So alcohol already advertised, whatever. But the um, having um, commercialized sales of Oxycontin didn't work all that well. And so I think that in order, we need to come up with different models of legalization for each drug that would make sense with its relative risks and harms and benefits. Uh, you want to say something? Or? I, I would disagree only on one point. I think that the commercial model for opioids or any substance works just fine because markets and private entities like Consumer Reports or similar things inform people about the risks, they get information about the relative risk from their doctors, their friends, et cetera. And so the commercialization just means that competing advertisers will be telling people, no, my version of opioids is safer than your version, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. If it works that way, I'm with you. That's exactly <laughs> what the tobacco companies were doing in the 1950s. Smoke my brand because it'll kill you less quickly than their brand, and consumption of tobacco went down. Well, and what's interesting too is like, Unfortunately, with tobacco, you had a failure of harm reduction because light cigarettes should yes. have been harm reduction, but they did them wrong, and they were actually worse. Um, if you had had vaping back then, yeah. you would have had a mass, you know, and so, yeah. Well, this was a great panel. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break. 
um, about 10 minutes. We have, we have kind of shortened the break because...